Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for Thursday, September 28th. 2017, the Everyone Listens to Women When They Speak Around Here edition. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad you got my joke. I'm Emily Bazelon. I'm hosting this week because I have no idea where David is. And actually, I don't even know where John Dickerson is. But it's okay because we are staging a takeover of the Slate Political Gab Fest with Ross Douthit, a New York Times columnist and new resident of New Haven. Welcome, Ross. So glad to thank, have you. Thank you for having me. It's good to be the token male um, That's for, right. for once. That's right. That's why I picked the title I did for the show. I'm glad you appreciated that. And we're also joined by Ruth Marcus, who is the deputy editorial page editor for The Washington Post and also a columnist there. Hey, Ruth. So glad to have you. Hey, nice to be here. And Ross, just don't talk over us. You know I what happens uh, then. <laughs> I, I almost did, but, but, I, but I stopped myself. But actually, it's very hard to do the show without talking over people. I'm the principal offender. We should say that the quote at the top of the show is from Nancy Pelosi at a meeting this week, and Ruth also talked about it in a column, which everyone should go read. Okay, on this week's GabFest, first, the Republicans say goodbye to the latest health care bill, and they say hello to tax reform, or... Per President Trump, we can just call it tax cuts. Second, Roy Moore won the runoff for the Republican nomination for Senate in Alabama. And there are other strange Republican doings going on, like Bob Corker, senator of Tennessee, retiring. So is the Republican Party sailing into a new and promising future or is at the brink of an abyss? And third, President Trump uses some of the country's top athletes to jumpstart the culture wars and to distract us from the terrible news coming out of Puerto Rico. Or maybe that's just a terrible way to frame this topic, and Ross and Ruth will come up with a better one for me when we get to it. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And on Slate Plus, we'll talk about whether cabinet officials like Scott Pruitt of the EPA should have their own private office sound booths. And really, I think what I want to talk about is why it is that some wasteful government spending stories take off and others don't. Okay, so our first topic, the Trump administration released a nine-page proposal for tax cuts this week. It calls for a 20% corporate tax rate down today from 35%. It calls for a 25% tax rate for businesses that pay taxes through the individual turns of their owners. This is the pass-through structure. About 95% of businesses in the U.S. are structured this way, I learned, to my surprise. There's all this unspecified sort of TBD part of this plan. So, like, there's going to be some rule that prevents people who earn lots of money through wages from just setting up their own shell corporations. But we don't know what that is yet. And then we're going to go from seven tax brackets down to three or possibly four. There will be no more alternative minimum tax. There will be some addition to the standard deduction, some higher child tax credit, and repealing of personal exemptions. So, 
We're supposed to be simplifying the tax code, and then there's these tax breaks, which are heavily weighted, as far as I can tell, toward corporations and rich people. Ruth, do you think a plan like this is actually going to pass? I can argue it either way. So I know that's a terrible answer. On the one hand, and I used to be an editorial writer, and all the times I wrote editorials, I really I don't think I ever used that phrase, so I'm apologizing now to GabFest listeners for using it. On the one hand, the fact that healthcare failed yet again actually increases the chances that a tax cut slash reform will pass because Republicans have nothing to show for their unified control of government beyond Justice Gorsuch. And Justice Gorsuch is a big deal, but that was engineered while President Obama was still president by Mitch McConnell, now out of favor with both the president and apparently Republican voters. So they have failed. The fact that they have failed to do the main things they promised to do makes this tax reform their last best hope of something significant. On the other hand, Tax reform is really hard. That's why we haven't had a significant tax reform since 1986. And there's lots of competing constituents. Yes, it's easier than healthcare in the sense that you're giving money to people rather than potentially taking something away from people. But actually, there are winners and losers even in tax cuts. And there is this issue of the deficit, which Republicans used to care about. And, oh, by the way, the clock is ticking. Um, There are serious Republican lawmakers who think that if tax reform is not done, I keep calling it tax reform, but that really gives it too much credit. If this tax lollapalooza extravaganza of a benefit to lots of rich people is not done by Thanksgiving, it's not going to get done at all. And you may notice that the calendar pages are turning towards October. And you may also know that in many of those calendar pages, the Republican, the Congress is not working most of those days because after Thanksgiving, we're thinking about the holiday break, which we, I guess, now call the Christmas break. And then we're into, yes, an election year. So I think this is a really hard challenge, especially for Congress that has not proved itself up to the challenge of passing legislation. Ross, what are you feeling about its chances? That's a good assessment. Uh, I think there was tremendous pressure to pass something. Um, I mean, one reason healthcare kept coming back from the dead, even though nobody really wanted it to, was this sense of sort of the stink of failure hanging over Congress and, and the sense that, well, we, you know, I mean, we have to try again with Graham Cassidy, even though three previous efforts failed because it can't look like we're just giving up. We have to do something. And passing some sort of tax cut and with, you know, some reformish elements woven in should be easier than healthcare because you do have more winners than you did from almost any of the healthcare bills that the Republicans were considering. But the proposal is just sort of a mess. If you go through it, everything is TBD except for the corporate tax cut and the t- upper bracket reduction, you know, which is it's sort massive. of which is which is substantial and which tells you something about sort of the persistence of Republican tax cutting priorities, even in the supposedly populist age of Donald Trump. Trump has been going around saying, I want this to be a middle class tax cut. I, you know, he said yesterday, the day before, I don't want to personally or I don't personally benefit from this and so on. But 
that probably isn't true. And it's clear that the the thing that the Republicans writing this outline ag- can agree easily on is lowering the corporate rate and lowering the top rate and everything else they're not sure about. And this leads to something that sort of tax wonks on the right and left spent the last couple of days trying to figure out, which is it, you can't even tell if this plan is a middle class tax cut or not because it's doing so many different things. If you just read how it's written, it sounds like, okay, you're doubling the standard deduction, you're taking many more people off the tax rolls, Trump is touting how there's now effectively a a 0% bracket, that's what he wants to talk about, and there's going to be some larger child tax credit. Okay, but then at the same time, you have various, you have the bottom rate going from 10% to 12%, and you have some other things happening with deductions that that end up clawing a lot of money back for the middle class. And so you have a situation where it seems like at the very least people in the like 100,000 to 300,000 range could see their taxes go up. And then it's quite possible that you could have like a family of four who are sort of the core Republican constituency right now in many ways having their taxes go up or at least having all these things end up as just sort of a wash. And so Basically, Republic, the Republican challenge is, one, figure out all this TBD stuff, and two, figuring it out in a way that makes the plan more politically marketable than it seems right now. Because, you know, the Reagan and Bush tax cuts were tax cuts for the rich and tax cuts for the middle class, and that's how they were sold. There was a willingness to obviously expand the deficit to do that, but that was the political approach. This approach is more, we're clear on we're cutting tax cuts for the rich, and we're saying we're cutting taxes for everyone else. But we can't actually prove it to you because our math is a big mess. And we're doing it at a moment in contrast to the Reagan and Bush tax cut where the economy is already at a fuller throttle, right? So it was both true, that, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, that in the Reagan-Bush moments, there was more revenue coming into the federal treasury. So having less of it was had a different kind of overall piece of the pie. And also that this notion that, you know, we're going to create more economic growth and so the plan will pay for itself, which is, you know, a kind of classic Republican promise. A recurring claim, yes. A recurring claim. A canard. A A slight canard. An optimistic canard. But does it not feel especially implausible right now, given the the sort of moment we're in with the economy? So let's talk about the different moments. Um, when Reagan cut taxes, and by the way, after um, the sainted President Reagan cut taxes, he then increased taxes, tax rates were way higher for individuals and needed to come down. Uh, also, the debt was at uh, something like 20% of GDP. Now it is at 75% of GDP and growing and growing at a time when, by the way, we're going to need more government revenue, not less, because we have a society that's significantly aging um, well beyond. It's a lot older than it was. We're all a lot older than we were when Reagan was president. Even um, me. And so is society as a whole. <laughs> and and when George W. Bush cut taxes, it is little recalled that the reason he needed to cut taxes originally was that we had a projected surplus and it was time to give some of that hard-earned money back to the taxpayers who it had been mistakenly taken from. Then that rationale turned into we needed a um, uh, incentive to stimulate the economy because the economy was starting to slow. And that was the argument for speeding up some tax cuts in 2003. Um, not, and by the way, 
debt to um, as a ratio of GDP was still very low. And in fact, we were worrying at the uh, start of it that we were going to spend down the debt too quickly and we wouldn't have any more debt and that was not going to be good for the economy. So times have changed. Times were different. And I would just like to say straight out that it is it is we should absolutely be talking about tax reform. It is crazy for us to be talking about a tax cut. The economy doesn't need it. The budget can't sustain it. It will hurt growth, not help growth in the long run. And this is like the emperor's new clothes. Nobody is saying it. And by the way, Republicans used to care about deficits. Mm, not for a long time. Not for a long when, time. When Republicans are in Cheney. power. I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll defend the idea of a tax cut modestly just by saying a couple of things. One is that, yes, the deficit share of GDP is much larger than it was in the past. And at some point, there will have to be some kind of fiscal adjustment. At the same time, we're in a period where interest rates have basically stayed low and inflation has stayed incredibly low. And the economy has grown, but it hasn't grown at the pace that anyone would like to see, I think. There's some evidence that in the last couple of years, wage growth has actually picked up. But we've been in a stagnant economic recovery basically since the end, the end of the Great Recession. Um, and in that environment with, you know, stagnant wages and slow growth, I think there is a case for giving people more money in their paychecks. I think the, the mm, tilt of the Republican... People more the, money in no, their no, paychecks no, no, I'm not, would sound good, but is that what's happening? No, it's not. That's okay. why but the Republican, that, I'm sorry, the Republican Ross, plan is... is a, that, that's um, Well, I'm going to give you two offers. I mean, there's two doors. Behind door number one uh, to s stimulate economic growth is a tax cut that will give people more money in their pockets, some of which they might spend and some of which they might not spend because they could invest it. They could, you know, whatever, uh, sock it into their money that they're not going to have to pay um, estate taxes on. And behind door number two is, uh, let's call it $1.5 because that's the alleged size of this tax cut infrastructure plan. Which do you think would be better for the economy? Um, I think actually a tax cut that was concentrated more towards the middle class might be better for the economy. Because I think if you concentrated, I'm not defending this proposal, it's a bad proposal as far as I can see. But I think a tax cut concentrated more towards the middle and working class would actually be spent more because you're giving money to people who are not part of the investor class, not stocking money away, who are sort of often living paycheck to paycheck and are likely to actually take the money and spend it. Whereas what, I, I'm, I'm perfectly in favor of spending some more money on infrastructure too. It's trying to sort of shove one, I mean, you know, as much as I appreciate the fantasies of Steve Bannon, I think the $1.5 trillion infrastructure plan was always a bit of a fantasy and getting that kind of thing off the ground quickly and sort of spending that kind of money is like, squeezing a camel through not an eye of a needle, but, you know, the gears of the federal bureaucracy. So I'm, I'm, You're picking you know, door I, number three, which is I'm the picking, I, I like as door always, as always, as yeah. always, you know, my, my stance on Republican tax plans is, is fairly consistent. I think the party was sensible to do supply side tax cuts in the seventies and eighties, less sensible to do them under Bush and shouldn't really be doing them to the same extent now. But if this plan were actually balanced between a corporate tax cut and a middle class tax cut, I might favor it. I think the problem is there isn't a discernible middle class or family tax cut, and so it's not a plan worth supporting. This is Trump's base. These are the people who voted for him. And for the reasons you said, they very might well stimulate the economy. And 
even if they save some some of the money, one can sympathize. Not the worst thing in the world. Right. And one can sympathize with them wanting some of their money back. And I would just add that I would also want to do something like expand the earned income tax credit so then you get into the bottom third, which, as I understand it, is not going to directly benefit from this plan. But, okay, so if we imagine our more progressive set of tax cuts, which benefit, you know, Trump's populist base, that seems entirely in line with who elected him. Mm -hmm. And yet what we're getting instead is him claiming that those people are going to benefit when in fact the people who are benefiting are the rich donor class. And there is just something for me kind of heartbreaking about the idea that people might swallow this line when it's just clearly not true because the messenger of it is someone who they trust. Well, they didn't really swallow it with with healthcare. And the reason the healthcare plans failed was in part because they were seen as taking money, resources, benefits, and so on away from the middle and lower middle class without giving much in return. So I think a lot depends on sort of what the reaction to this plan is, how it gets adjusted, how the Democrats attack it, and so on. But that is, that's the political vulnerability that people can come out and say, again, the the plan as written is so unclear that you could take this outline and deliver a lower middle class, middle class family tax cut. You could do it. But they aren't doing it at the moment as far as we can as far as we can tell. Well, and it's hard to trust this administration to come out that way. Why would you why would you say it's what? hard to trust this administration <laughs> over well, there? I don't know. I don't know. You Luke, know, do you want the last word? Sure. Um this is not that the administration or the folks in Congress who've been working on the tax plan forgot to do it, so they had to stay up all night and scribble this thing out and hand it in without proofreading. The reason it's all TBD is that all the Ds are really hard to figure out. They all gall somebody or they all, once you spell things out, show how much the top 1% um could really benefit from something like this. I do think that the health care debate was harder to for Republicans to sell because people felt that something that was very central to them could end up being taken away from them and hurt them. This is somebody else might be getting more than I think he or she should get, but I'm going to get a little bit for me too. So I, I think it might end up being a little bit easier for Republicans to slide this one through. This episode of The GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like... Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. 
Roy Moore is now officially the Republican nominee for the Alabama Senate. That's kind of amazing, given his stances, given his propensity to say things that other Republicans really wish he would shut up about. And yet it's sort of not surprising at all, given this Trumpian moment. And Steve Bannon, who Ross just mentioned earlier in a different context, is promising to repeat Alabama, starting with primary challenges in Nevada, Arizona, and Mississippi. And then, as I mentioned earlier, we have the surprise announcement that Senator Bob Corker is retiring in Tennessee. So there's a lot of room for kind of inner party fomenting right now. So, Ross, how are you feeling about the Republican Party and like what this means for its future? I mean, I think our plan for a uh, theocracy is coming along swimmingly, Emily. And, um, you know, Roy Moore uh, will arrive in Washington and the secularization of American society will be instantly reversed. And, you know, I mean, Republic of Gilead, 2032, I think, is sort of the timeline we're looking at. And there'll be a Ten Commandments on every street. <laughs> Emily and, and I are... And excellent, excellent fashions for women, red, blue, maybe a third color we haven't decided. I don't know. Handmaid's Tale is all red. No, the wives got oh, to the wear blue. Oh, the wives wore the blue. The wives wore the blue. That's true. No, I identified very attractive so strong, too. <laughs> the handmaidens. <laughs> oh, but, well, uh, well, we can talk about that in 2032. But... Um, More seriously, um, Roy Moore will not be most likely shifting religious trends in the United States or building any kind of theocracy. What he will be doing, in fact, is contributing to this sort of continued chaos of the Republican Party. And, you know, I think this is a good example of sort of how there's an inability within the Republican Party to have its battle lines congeal into anything that represents sort of serious policy disputes. Instead, they're like Roy Moore and Donald Trump are completely different figures in terms of sort of what part of the country they come from, what worldview they hold in many ways. And yet they are both sort of, you know, Moore, even though Trump didn't support him, is a Trumpian figure to the extent that he's just sort of a vessel for voters who are exasperated with the political establishment. And in Alabama, that discontent with the establishment was completely understandable because Luther Strange was had been appointed as a senator by the governor who he was supposedly investigating for corruption. Like it was an absurd sort of local situation in which casting a protest vote for Roy Moore was the only way for voters to sort of express disgust with this. Well, so, maybe not the only way, but okay, go Well, on. you could, you know, it's a, it was a two-man race in the end. But, but yes, I, I take your point. But what that means is that, you know, Roy Moore comes to Congress and does he represent some sort of Trumpian populist faction that has some specific different policy vision on healthcare and taxes or anything else? Probably not. He just sort of represents another example of the party's sort of march towards endless battles that don't get you anywhere on substance, right? Right, because now we're going, I mean, he, just to give some of the substance here, he has said that homosexuality should be illegal. He has some idea that there's like Sharia law oppressing people in maybe Indiana. In 2009 and 2010, pro-Confederate activists held secession day events at his foundation. I mean, we're just talking about someone who's sort of inflaming. Like, right, that's but, none of, but none of that relates to, uh, you know, there, there's not going to be a bill coming up for debate that curtail same-sex marriage, let alone goes any further on homosexuality. I mean, none of the sort of culture war issues that he's been active in are likely to matter for national policy. And on the issues that do matter for national policy, you know, he'll be a reliable Republican vote, presumably, if they get to the point of agreeing on anything. But he's another sort of case study in why they 
they can't. Right. So, Ruth, I mean, do you feel like the there's a way in which Democrats are overly gleeful about a figure like Moore? He isn't as meaningful as Democrats sometimes want to hold him out. Or is it like perfectly fair to essentially say to the Republican Party, is there no one too extreme for you to endorse? Uh, you know, I, I just have to say that I don't think anybody in America should be gleeful at the thought of Senator Roy Moore any more than they were at the thought of Justice Roy Moore. But now twice ex-Justice, right? So right. There twice you go. removed. I mean, this is yes. not a good sign for America. This is not a good sign for the Senate. Uh, the Democrats, I think, have to be fooling themselves if they think there's a way to win the Senate seat in Alabama. Um, you know, let me know when that happens. And so, yeah, they can have some fun with Roy Moore, but what they really should be hoping for are more corkers, really, and fewer Moors. And I know it's politics and they want to narrow their majority, but fundamentally, we need to start getting some things done in America. I'm sorry to sound so kind of airy and hopeful <laughs> and no, actually kind of oh, like that we should all behave in a, a kumbaya way. Look, here's the I, I've been thinking about the prospect of Senator Moore from the perspective of his future Republican colleagues. Who, like these poor people, they've already had Ted Cruz inflicted on them. Now here comes another plague. And it's no surprise that serious people who are moderate and thoughtful and serious legislators like Bob Corker are thinking about leaving or, in fact, leaving because they understand that they are dealing with a primary electorate that has turned into essentially a mob and that a mob that can be incited by the bannons of the world against them. And that affects their ability to act in serious and responsible ways while they're in the Senate. I suspect that Senator Corker is not going to be the last retirement we're going to see. Huh. And in the meantime, we have this kind of rage at Mitch McConnell fueling this race, right? So, like, in theory, it was a rejection of President Trump since he endorsed Luther Strange. But really— No, Trump that those tweets were—I I know I'm talking over you, um, Mrs. Pelosi, but um, those tweets were withdrawn and deleted so that they didn't exist. Okay. Yeah. But well, in any case, yeah. I it seems to me that Trump will be perfectly happy and has already made it clear that he supports more. There's like a Trumpian quality to more, just as Ross yeah. said. But I do take it seriously as a rejection of Mitch McConnell. And I'm kind of amazed at the way in which Mitch McConnell is not appreciated by people for oh, whom he but, is generally but, but delivered. But let me, let me speak up for the mob, right? I mean, one, look, Roy Moore should not be a United States senator. And I completely agree with, with Ruth's point about sort of the fact, you know, the sort of increasing incapacity of the legislative branch is a big problem for the country. But at the same time, like Mitch McConnell and the leadership of the Republican Party told Republican voters for seven years that they had a great plan to replace Obamacare. And that was just a lie. They didn't have a plan. They couldn't agree on them among themselves on a plan. There are all kinds of cross-cutting ideological reasons why the moderates in the party and you know the small government wing of the party can't come together and craft a comprehensive health care bill. And McConnell and company didn't have a strategy. You know, McConnell is a very effective sort of Senate parliamentarian, but in terms of sort of getting the party to the point where it can deliver on the promises that it keeps making to its own voters. He hasn't done a very good job. And then, you know, he's out there defending Luther Strange, who, again, 
it just bears re-mentioning the, the establishment candidate was picked for the Senate seat by the governor who he was investigating for corruption. Like this is a situation where the establishment is behaving deeply irresponsibly. The tragedy and the crisis of the Republican Party is not just that there's these sort of you know, wise establishmentarians and there's this mob out there with pitchforks. It's that the mob is crazy in one way and the establishment is a mix of sort of incompetence and this sort of cynicism where they think they can tell the mob things for five years that are just sort of barefaced lies. I mean, Eric Cantor, you know, there's an interview with Eric Cantor recently where he was talking about, well, we said we could do these things against Obama, but of course we always knew that wasn't that wasn't true. But voters don't know that's not true. Republican voters will accept compromises if someone they trust is doing them. That's why, you know, Trump's deal with Pelosi and Schumer actually pulled pretty well with Republicans. The trick is how do you get someone in a position of power who voters actually trust? And the party is a long way and getting an even longer way away from being there. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Last fall, I believe, when Colin Kaepernick was on the San Francisco 49ers, he chose to sit on the bench for a couple of games during the national anthem. And then he started kneeling during the anthem. And he said that his purpose was to protest police brutality. This was around the time of, you know, a number of publicized shootings by the police of unarmed black men. So we've now had this moment where this kind of fairly solo or sort of there was one other player joining him, this concentrated small protest turned into a big moment in the national culture wars, as Ross was writing about this week. And I'm sure a lot of us have been thinking about. And so now, obviously, you know, we have President Trump going after these kinds of protests by black athletes and then also insulting Steph Curry, the NBA star, and just sort of Generally, it seemed to me trying to sow division by railing at black athletes with, you know, words that he has not used to condemn white supremacists, like a sort of level of just rage and irritation. And he did all this in front of an almost all white audience in Alabama when he was actually down there campaigning for Luther Strange. So... Ross, you were arguing this morning that, you know, there are good things about the culture wars, like culture wars that are worth fighting, but that this one, I, if I have you right, seems kind of devoid of actual policy progress, that it much more has all the symbolism. And you were also, I think, kind of saying a pox on both your houses about Kaepernick, the, at least his original vision for this protest, and President Trump. And so I wonder, is the, am I interpreting you Right. And do you feel like that's like the right framework for Well, I mean, Trump is worse than Kaepernick. I mean, Trump <laughs> is the president of the United States and has, you know, sort of the responsibilities of that office. And Kaepernick mm -hmm. was I, I, well, I had some criticisms of both Kaepernick's strategy and then sort of some of the gestures that he made early on, you know, wearing socks with police portrayed as pigs and wearing a Fidel Castro T-shirt and so on. And it's a free country and you can protest any way you want 
or you should be able for the, to. And for I the sure, moment. For the moment. And I certainly don't think that, you know, that football players should be fired for refusing to stand for the national anthem. Nonetheless, you, you know, I think you can reasonably say that the Kaepernick protest wasn't sort of working that effectively. It wasn't before. unifying well, in all of its well, elements. Well, no protest is going to be unifying, right? And I mean, this is protests are polarizing inevitably. And, you know, the civil rights protesters weren't generally popular during the late 50s and 60s. And lots of people sort of said, you know, why can't they be more unifying? And why are they stirring up trouble? That's always true. But it still is true that you're sort of the particular strategy you take. I, I just felt like the, the Kaepernick protests became were sort of overtly... Well, I I don't know the, the the sort of the specific gestures he made and the fact that it sort of made it about the national anthem in this way it didn't seem that effective. But then you know Trump obviously has made it that much worse and been that much more inappropriate and ridiculous. Well, and yeah, go ahead. Go no, ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, well, I think he has turned us. We're all Kaepernick's now, right? I mean, the president keeps saying everybody's with him, and actually the polling shows some some basis for that. But the two layers of uh, unbelievable and seemingly completely self-unaware hypocrisy here on the part of the president and his allies are really breathtaking. Um, on the one hand, steadfast obliviousness to police violence, but not in any way moved to express offense unless I'm absolutely pushed to it to the max by white supremacist protesters. And connected to that are these, you know, two competing views of the First Amendment. The attorney general went out this week and talked about political correctness on college campuses and how we couldn't live in this world of enforced political correctness. And meanwhile, the president wants us to live in this world of enforced political correctness because he thinks people should be fired from ESPN and from sports teams for expressing themselves. Only black people. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I think he would expand it to anyone who criticized him. But he seems to really only bother to get angry when it's black people. He's, it's just not a coincidence. Trump is always desperate for situations where he he can claim to be more patriotic than someone else. He cannot bring himself to criticize anyone who he sees as even vaguely on his side up to and including white supremacists. I suppose. It's just that the um, race baiting part of this just seemed so clear to me. So yeah. No, no, I think it's clear. Yeah. But he I'm does. Not, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing. I'm just sort of expanding the. I the so frame. I actually was someone who I was not at all put off by Kaepernick's original protest, and I I've been trying to figure out why exactly. And part of it is I think that when people conduct nonviolent protests, they should get to pick how they're doing it. And that I also thought that Kaepernick's audience. Well, I know like if it's television um, for a football game, it's the NFL TV audience, which is your audience. But I also thought that Kaepernick was that he maybe his audience was African Americans or other people who were really upset about police brutality, and that he, as he said, was kind of using his moment on television to stand for them and for that, and that that's like perfectly acceptable as a use of fame. And I was very moved this past weekend. I mean, I don't know what choice all those teams had other than to support him, because I think, Ruth, you're right. I mean, when you have the NFL owners out there taking a knee on the field, surely we are at a moment where this original protest has taken on a whole new dimension. And what's being defended is the right to protest itself and team solidarity. And what interests me the most now is what happens next. So it seems to me that the athletes, and I include in this people like LeBron James and Steph Curry, who have done a really good job, I think, of responding to Trump. So 
What are some concrete demands and concrete actions that all of this conversation could lead to so that we don't have a just empty culture war, but we also we actually use this to move somewhere. And so I was um, happy to see people like Malcolm Jenkins, who's an Eagles player, talking about ending life without parole for juveniles in Philadelphia, where he plays. Philadelphia has a terrible record on exactly this point. And it seems to me like it would be really great if this became a moment of targeted choices about criminal justice policy where the voters really can move things. So, you know, another potential example could be there's a movement right now going on in Florida to re-enfranchise people who have formerly been in prison. That's something that, you know, the Jaguars, who I'm told to play in Jacksonville by my children, um, <laughs> could get behind. Like, there are all kinds of opportunities across the country for that kind of activism, and I hope we see more of it. There was and maybe still is this moment for a left-right coalition for some forms of criminal justice reform, perhaps not forgiving convicted felons their franchise back because you know what, actually, they might not I've vote heard, the way some people well, would like. Well, I but, actually heard from someone last week that the Koch brothers were behind that, or at least well, they good, weren't going to stand for, in the no, way. There's, there's a, there's there a strong a liber- libertarian support for that, but it doesn't always translate into actual congressional Republicans yeah. who, aren't, who aren't named Rand one, Paul. wonder why that is. It. There are potentials in the criminal justice area. One really big change and not a change for the better since the Kaepernick protests started is the change in the attitude of the Justice Department towards police brutality cases. So the impact of having a Justice Department watching over you is not going to make police departments perfect, but the absence of a Justice Department watching over you is not going to make the situation any better. But we also have this distinctive problem around policing where the cities that were most affected by protests after you know after the the protest started in Ferguson Missouri are cities where you know the police have seemingly have effectively stepped back and those are the cities that have seen this really quite alarming spike in murder rates over so the last 2 years why do you feel sure of that in Chicago and Baltimore that the cops have stepped back the contexts are a little bit different. Chicago has a particular gang violence problem that is distinctive and predated, I think, any kind of Ferguson effect. I guess I'd put it back to you. What do you think is the reason for the post-Freddie Gray spike in homicides? Just sort of general general unrest that the cops aren't that the cops are trying to respond to? So now we've switched to Baltimore, just so that I'm, because you talked about Freddie Gray. I'm just trying to keep track. Yes, I was switching. I think Baltimore is a better, if there is a Ferguson effect, I think it's more obvious in places like Baltimore. If there is an effect, by the Ferguson effect, I just mean a situation where you have a period of protest followed by what seems to be a kind of police withdrawal, effectively. I'm going to, and, su- and I think Baltimore is a better example of that than Chicago, because she, although there is a there is a similar pattern in Chicago, but the gang violence problem in Chicago, I think, is distinctive. And I'm not a criminal justice expert, so take this with a grain of salt. So I'm going to surprise so I, Ross by agreeing with him because I've talked to Democratic mayors who believe there is this effect. And that is not good for communities either. The relations between the police and the communities they're serving is really important. And it's there are lots of reasons that it's very hard to convict police officers of brutality. There are a lot of important protections we have, including proof beyond a reasonable doubt, before convicting people. 
And some of these uh, acquittals just seem absolutely mystifying and enraging. Some of them are more understandable, but we have to figure out a way to do better. And and we have to figure out a way, as we're doing better, to keep communities protected from violence if police officers are stepping back. So I don't feel like I am expert enough in Baltimore or Chicago to be sure about what I'm saying. However, in Baltimore, we have a history, you know, going back to Martin O'Malley of this zero-tolerance policing, which was devastating to black communities. It was not productive. This is something that, you know, David Simon, among other people, has written a lot about. And in Chicago, there has been a problem of the most junior, least experienced officers getting assigned to the most violent neighborhoods, and also a problem of corruption and just like mismanagement with promotions. That was something that the Chicago PD itself was really upset about. So I feel like, you know... But what do you think? I mean, I, I guess the question, I read all the David Simon stuff and all the critiques of zero tolerance policing. But the fact is that you know, over the last two years, Baltimore's murder rate has gone way up. And it's a lot, there are a lot more dead people and Baltimore is a lot less safe. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the safest city. I lived there for a year. It wasn't the safest city in America beforehand. But, but there is, it's worse. I've been just trying to figure out like, you know, and sort of overlapping with what Ruth said, what are the policy levers here? What is the place where you get to a situation where the cops have better relations with the community and people feel like the cops are more likely to be held accountable, and the cops are actually out there doing their jobs, which in some cases they don't seem to be at the moment. So the two things we know work in terms of reducing homicide spikes are hotspot policing, which fits in what you're saying, right? right? I mean, it's a way of doing this well. And then also these anti-violence strategies that come under the umbrella of focused deterrence. There's a really good New York Times op-ed about this that mentions the work of David Kennedy. He's someone who I've been talking to lately about this issue. And that's this sort of, there are some moving parts to this, but essentially you try to figure out with the police, but also other parts of the community, who really are the most serious violent offenders and people who kind of control the criminality that's happening in a community. And then you like, bring in their loved ones and you bring in community leaders and you tell them to stop and you make it clear there are going to be consequences if they don't. And that strategy has actually worked in a number of cities while it's being implemented. Now, it doesn't always become sustained and that can be a real tragedy. But those are as far as I know the things that we know best that actually work. And I just get worried when we start talking about the Ferguson effect that we're blaming protesters who are really protesting something legitimate for something that's, like, just more complicated. Let's move on to cocktail chatter. Ross, when you are sitting back with a drink of any kind this weekend, (laughs) maybe it will be a drink in a sippy cup for your smallest child. Um, What will you be talking about? Well, I probably wouldn't talk about this with my smallest child. Um, But Hugh Hugh Hefner passed away, um, which is a bit of a milestone in American life. My wife and I actually watched for a while um, and sometimes enjoyed The Girls Next Door, which was the reality show about Hefner and his harem that ran about 10 years ago. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting things to say about Hugh Hefner. Um, and as you can imagine, I have some unfavorable things to say. But I, the show itself was always interesting in part because it was a very skillfully produced show that had sort of, you found the the, gir- the girls, the young women, the women themselves kind of entertaining and interesting. And it tried to present Hefner as this kind of essentially lovable grandpa who 
probably wasn't really sleeping with the girls or anything like that. And they were mostly just sort of playing on slip and slides um, around the grotto. And then, you know, a few years later, the the actual memoirs about the experience of the, the girls themselves started to come out. And it was as gross as you might actually expect, a sort of world of quaaludes and Vaseline and lackluster orgies and, you know, the Playboy Mansion sort of rotting and decomposing in the places where the cameras weren't going. To me, as a whatever, socially conservative Catholic or something, you can sort of spin a morality play out of that. But I also thought it was interesting watching the show how clear it was that, you know, for part of America, Hugh Hefner was considered sort of sophisticated and interesting for about 20 years. And then people sort of got over it and started treating him as a kind of ludicrous and campy figure, I would say. A degenerate. A digi- well, a, right, a degenerate. But for another part of America, and this I think the show made clear when you would go out into real America and meet the cousins and friends and brothers and so on of uh, the women who ended up in his mansion, there was still this sort of mystique around Playboy. The idea that, you know, being a Playboy centerfold wasn't like being a porn star, that it was this really sort of classy an amazing thing that every girl next door should want to aspire to. So sort of moralizing about Hefner aside, I think it's interesting just to see his trajectory as, you know, an example of sort of the class and culture divide in America, how the sexual revolution ended up playing out differently, as we know very well, in different parts of the country and different social groups. And his position as a cultural icon was very different depending on which class and social group you belong to. Can I add a coda to that? A surprising fact I learned about Hugh Hefner yesterday, which was that he gave money to the acclaimed comedian Dick Gregory in 1964 to try to locate the bodies of Shorner, Goodman, and Cheney, the three civil rights workers who were killed in Mississippi. And he was a big backer of Dick Gregory, who also sadly died this summer. I was just a surprising, not the usual yep. way one thinks about Hugh Hefner. Ruth, tell us your cocktail chatter. Um, so I have a um, kind of seasonal cocktail chatter for the Jewish holidays. I've been looking for things that help me not think about Donald Trump. And so I've been looking for kind of high-quality binge-watching TV. And so I've been obsessed with this Israeli TV series called Srugim. It's S-R-U-G-I-M. And at the yep, for risk of cross-promotion, right? you can watch it on Amazon. It's fa- It's about um, modern Orthodox millennials living in Israel. And it's kind of like Friends meets Yentl. <laughs> and they're navigating the poles of a secular society and the um, really kind of communal attractions of, you know, orthodox community and trying to figure out how to make their way in the world. And I am really enjoying it, including the fact that it's um, subtitled, but I believe while I'm listening to it that I understand Hebrew, except that every point where I get tired and put my head down and can't read the subtitles anymore, it turns out I don't understand the Hebrew at all. Um, but it's it's actually quite delightful, and I'm at just starting the third season and can't wait to find out if I hope they all get happily married and deal with their infertility issues and how to be gay, orthodox, and make that work and everything else. So I'm having a good time with them. Okay, good. I'm. Um, that is a good inspiration to me. I've been meaning to try that show. Now I'm going to do it. 
I wanted to chatter this week about two books I got to read over the summer, which are now out. Um, I recommend both of them. The first one is Blurred Lines by Vanessa Gregoriadis. Vanessa, in my view, gets a medal for really doing some deep and interesting reporting on the sex lives and the thinking about sex of college students all over the country at different kinds of universities. She's just really good at getting students to reflect and be honest about what they're experiencing. And she's also incredibly fair-minded about the debate over campus sexual assault, which has become increasingly a minefield within feminism. So Blurred Lines by Vanessa Gregoriadis. And the second book I want to really recommend is called Mental, Lithium, Love, and Losing My Mind. It's by my colleague Jamie Lowe at the New York Times Magazine. And it's a memoir about her own experience of being bipolar, being hospitalized as a teenager and just grappling with her condition and various treatment options. And really her concern that lithium, which essentially um, allowed for her to flourish, um, Jamie's an amazing person, was also something that was making her physically ill after many years. And she had to figure out essentially how to lose a kind of essential element of her mental health. So Mental by Jamie Lowe, it's one of those books which is incredibly entertaining, even it is also instructive and poignant. That's our show for today. The Political Gab Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Rode. Please subscribe to the GabFest and Apple Podcasts and review and rate the show. It really, really helps us, and we super appreciate it. For Ross Dalvid and Ruth Marcus, I'm Emily Bazelon. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk with you next week. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.